again, don't panic. You're thinking, what are you doing back up there again? We have a pastor and you're not him. I know. I know. Don't panic. This is just for a moment. Pastor Kevin um, came up with an idea. As you may know, uh, Pastor James is finishing up his Ph.D., which is just a little bit tough, probably, as I'm looking at him, he's being great. It's a lot tough. And we thought, let's designate a couple weeks where we give him a chance to just focus on that, because there's other things involved in being a pastor than standing up here and talking, as I'm doing. And he has those jobs to do, and so we decided to relieve him in a few weeks. So don't panic, this is not permanent. And uh, I, just to, to compliment Pastor James, I, what a blessing it has been. Yes, and I want you to hear that. To hear you, um, and I just, uh, I'm going to try not to get emotional because John, the, the Gospel of John, is not like the other Gospels. And um, I think where he picked up, and just by God's providence, as we get into that upper room, we really see the intimacy of Christ with his apostles, don't we? And Pastor James has done a nice job of bringing that out to see the love that Christ has, the patience Christ has, the, the servant attitude Christ has with these apostles that are around him that are doubting, that are not understanding, that lack faith, knowing what he's going to face in just a few hours, and yet, and yet has the love for these men that are there uh, who he saved, who he chose, and and pastor's done a fantastic job of bringing that out. And he would say, well, that's the word, and he's right, but he has used him to bless me, and I've enjoyed that. Now, saying all of that, the next verse was and chapter is John 14. And I'll be honest, that's like red meat for a hungry lion for me, because that's the rapture, really. And we'll get to that, but I'm leaving that for him. What I, when I knew this was coming, I had in the back of my head a perspective. And as you look up here, I was reluctant to put a picture up here that is not real, but when, if you were in Sunday school, Pastor put He-Man up here on the screen. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about just this fake rendering of John. It got my attention, Pastor. I, I liked that. But here's why I wanted to put a picture. Obviously, we don't know what John looked like, but here's what I want you to do. It is very easy for us to dehumanize the apostles, isn't it? They are in this book, they're chosen, they do these kind of sometimes baffling things and then incredible things as we get into the book of Acts. They're, they're, they're learning and listening at the foot of Christ and, and we sometimes almost make them fairy tales. But they were very human, human and they were, they were very much like us. And they were sinners that needed a Savior just like us. They struggled just like us. And the reason I chose this, by the way, I, I don't know what John looked like, but I do know he grew old. And I do know that in his 90s, potentially, he's reflecting. He's writing not only his gospel that we've been going through, but his epistle. And as we get to the book of Revelation, his book, Revelation, God's book, Revelation, that he gave to him, that he revealed to him. And I, I can't help but to think. And I, I'd like you to just kind of kind of transport yourself to this moment that he reflected back on what was going on and what he saw and what he went through. And it wouldn't take much imagination to figure it wasn't all easy, was it? As a matter of fact, I'd say most of it was hard. 
most of it was difficult. Christ has to encourage the apostles in the very next verse in John 14 because he knows, he knows their heart will be troubled. In John 16, take heart, I've overcome the world. But this life has trouble. John not only realized that when he was a young man, 20s or 30s, when he heard Christ, but certainly saw that when he's in his 90s. The only one left and the last one standing. So as I put this picture up here, it's not to stimulate in anything other than to consider, imagine what John experienced. Imagine what he saw and what he lived and how he must have had to rely on that relationship, that fellowship with Christ that he learned from Christ in prayer. And, that, and that's really what I want us to see here. Before we jump into this and before I set this up, let's pray one more time. This will be a more brief prayer. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you. All that I said earlier, we all continue to believe. We praise you and thank you. Be with us as we look at your word today. We thank you for the ability to come into your presence like this. This happens because of your son, the sacrifice that he made and the fact that he is our high priest and he is petitioning for us and makes a way and bridges this. We thank you for that. I pray that we not take it for granted. Help us to learn from John and your word today and the other apostles as they give us direction on what our perspective should be on prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. To begin this today, I actually don't want to start with John. I'm going to set us up and help, help us to understand that we need a little discernment. Honestly, truth be told, when we look at spiritual discernment, and I'd like you to turn here, we could start every sermon up here, no matter who was preaching, with this passage to help us get a, a greater understanding of this. Now, my motivation for using this passage came from last, last week's Sunday school lesson. Both Pastor James and Pastor Kevin said things that helped me to guide me in this particular uh, sermon that I'm going to deliver to you. But if you go to 1 Corinthians 2, I will say this. In general terms, this is the way we should understand every sermon that is uttered, every verse that is articulated, and everything that is explained from this pulpit or in Sunday school. And you'll see what I mean when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Picking this up, starting at verse 6. Paul is talking about Christ crucified, the concept of us being saved via a man dying on a Roman cross and being resurrected three days later, fulfilling prophecy, that concept. That is bizarre to people, but not to you, believer, I pray. Here's what it says. This is true of everything, including what we're going to study about prayer today. Verse 6, yet among the mature, mature believers, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age, or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed beforehand, before the ages, for our glory, His glory and ours. None of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Now let me pause there for a moment. Oftentimes we take this and we think it's describing heaven. I think it, it's a good description of heaven. Here, what we're talking about is the wisdom that comes from God. It's unimaginable. It's beyond what man could come up with. Many times I've heard those who want to defend the faith, and, and rightly they should, oftentimes will point to this. The story of Christ is not something man would invent. 
The, the story we hear in the Bible is not something that comes from man's invention. It doesn't praise man, and it, and it doesn't it lift us up as the hero. And that's what man would do. What we see here is a God who humbles himself, and that is not something we invent. What we see is a God who, who leads from the front. We see a sacrifice, and that's not something man would invent. What we're talking about here is the wisdom that comes from this book is a gift from the Almighty God. It's part of His grace. Yes, heaven is those things, but it's what we see in Scripture. Back to the text, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. We know God from the Holy Spirit giving us His Word and then help us to understand it in the believer's heart. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of the person who is in, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So in order to comprehend what we're going to study today, we, we must have the Holy Spirit to help us. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of, of Him who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Focus on that. Spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is to be judged by no one. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So, as the backdrop of every sermon ever uttered from this pulpit or in Sunday school, in, under, in order to understand this properly, you must be saved, you must be redeemed, you must now have the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit and a brand new heart. So what you're going to see me do right away is, some of you may not be in that category. You may not have any capacity to understand the proper perspective on prayer that John has, that we will see John having. John only has the proper perspective because he was saved by the Almighty King. He was saved by the Savior, the only Savior who could save him. And that's what, what I'd like to look at today. And you say, well, well what, what does that mean? Why is this going to be so tough? Well, look at these verses that I'm going to share with you. Here's one of them, and I'll bring two or three others up. It's important to understand that you may believe that anyone who just shouts out something to God, God listens to that. That God's going to heed that. That God's going to pay attention to that. I want you to notice what Solomon says. The Lord is far from the wicked. Far from them. But he hears the prayer of the righteous. You know what that indicates? He's not hearing everybody. A few others from Solomon. Here's what he says. He says this. What the wicked dreads will come upon him. He's scared. He's fearful. Remember, the believer doesn't live in fear because... Perfect love has casted out fear, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. Notice you're going to see wicked, righteous. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. It doesn't matter what they say to him or offer to him. If they are not in Christ, he's not listening and he doesn't care. But the prayer of the upright, the righteous, is acceptable to him. And what we already looked at, Proverbs 15, 29, far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. This bears a question, this this. It demands a question. Two questions, really. And that is, what is man anyway? What is man really like? Is he good or is he bad? This is a recent article within the last several months from Scientific American. You know, they really get it right because they're scientists and all. So they're going to get it right. 
And they've come to a conclusion. Aren't you thrilled that the scientists are telling you exactly what your heart's like? Here's the conclusion they came to. It's incredible. They finally figured this out. Scientists probe human nature and discover we're good after all. Thank goodness we can just shut this book and move on. Everybody go home. You're good. You're good to go. That's the conclusion they came to. Via scientific means, they came up with that conclusion. These recent studies says that our first impulse is selfless. Have you ever met a two-year-old? Have you ever met a 90-year-old? Yeah. No, our, our first instinct isn't selfless. Our first instinct is selfish. And that's my first instinct. And I'm a redeemed believer who has the hope of eternity, and I know I'm saved. And it's still the fight I have to fight. Do you feel that? I don't need a scientist to tell me otherwise. You, we've, I've shared this with you before, but Ligonier Ministries did a, a poll in 2019, that, that state of the church. And here's the shame of it. Close to 40% of evangelicals believe this same nonsense. How do we know different? Well, the question is, who are the wicked? Let me tell you what God says about who the wicked are. Romans 3, 9 through 18 tells us, it's you and me. That's who it is. I'm going to read this because it bears repeating. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Jews versus Gentiles, that's the discussion. Not at all. We have already charged that all, all includes all, both Jew and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. They should have checked that out before they did their scientific study. Because to me, the all in here is all-inclusive. It doesn't give one of us, you, me, or anyone else, a way out, does it? Not one of us. That's me, that's you, that's all of us. And as you continue to read in there, the end of this is there is no fear of God before their eyes. Pastor Kevin in in hour number one gave us the very basics of the gospel, didn't he? If you were here, and if you weren't, you should have been. It was excellent. Watch it on TV, but it's better live. The very basics of it. And where it starts is that there is a God, I'm not him essentially, and boy, I'm fallen. I need a Savior. I need a Savior uh, I can't remember who you quoted, but the first word of the gospel is repentance. Excellent quote. Excellent concept. That's true. And that's what we see out of Christ. But this is clearly us. This is who you are. And the famous passage we use over and over and over again, this is to remind the believer to stay humble. What does Paul say to the church in Ephesus? You, believer, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world and following the prince and the power of the air. The Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, you see this again, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The language is strong here. If you are not with Christ, you are against him. I quoted Lawson a few weeks ago, cosmic treason. I loved that, and that's exactly what it is. When you reject the the gospel of Jesus Christ as presented in the life, words, and book that he gave us, clearly articulating what it is to be saved, you deny that, you reject that, that is cosmic treason. You're not just not saved, you're his enemy. 
and his wrath rightly falls on you and me. There is a dividing line throughout space and time, and it is, it is a line everyone must face. If you think he's just going to listen to your prayers when you have outright rejected him, when you're his enemy, when you're his rebellious child who honestly isn't even his child, you just think you are, you're not thinking straight, you're not looking at the scriptures correctly, those are the wicked. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not the wicked, I'm a good person. I think I'm in the righteous category. Well, I think we need to figure out who the righteous is too. I think we need to understand that. You think, I thought you were going to talk about prayer. I am. But in order to talk to this incredible God of ours, this is what you have to be. Before I do, you got to be perfect. You have to be clean. You have to be set apart. You have to be different. And if you're looking in the mirror and you're being honest, you're thinking, that's not me. So it couldn't be your righteousness, could it? Here's what it is. And there's two things I want to look at here. 2 Corinthians and Romans 1, both from Paul, but here's what he says. He defines it for us. And by the way, you have seen this before. You've seen this before, but I want to look at it again. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, this great exchange? We are ambassadors for Christ, believer. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why is that reconciliation used here? Because you're an enemy until you are. Just what I've said earlier. For our sake, believer, he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, perfect lamb, never sinned, God incarnate in the flesh, walking amongst us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's none of you in that. There's none of your good deeds, and you should do them, by the way, in response to this, not to get this. Because of this, there should be righteous deeds that come out via the Holy Spirit and studying His Word and the conviction of the Holy Spirit and doing those things that were divinely appointed for you to do. Ephesians 2, verse 10. But that righteousness is the, the only kind of righteousness that God is going to pay attention to or listen to is the righteousness that comes from above and through His Son and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And it must be imparted on you via grace through faith. Romans 1. Paul loves this, and you should too. You shouldn't be ashamed of it, nor should I. Remember, he's, he's making you an ambassador in, in 2 Corinthians 5, and in Romans 1, he says, as an ambassador, essentially, I'm not ashamed of this. Why isn't he ashamed? Look at that closely. Because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Back to that, who's a sinner? Everybody. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Righteousness comes by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. That's it. So, if you want the Lord to listen to you, <laughs> this is where it starts. I've, I've said this before, and you know, Paul Washer says every single sermon has to have the gospel in it. I concur. They need to. I don't know the state of your soul. I don't know your heart. I can't see it. Some of you are excellent fakers. You're very good. You should go to Hollywood. You're very good at it. I don't know who that is, by the way. You're thinking, is he talking about me? I don't know. Okay, But I do know this. The gospel can and will change your life. And if you want to be able to enjoy 
what John enjoyed in his life, and, and I say enjoy intentionally, it was rough, but enjoy the peace, the comfort, the direction, the hope, the certainty, it starts with the gospel. If you've never put your faith in Christ, if by grace through faith in Christ alone has never happened to you, today's your day. Today's your day. Right here in this moment, Christ can save you. You don't have to come forward. You don't have to tell me, although I'd love to hear that. But Christ can transform your life today. So as we think about that, who are the righteous? The righteous are those who are saved by grace through faith. Those are the ones who have Christ's righteousness. He's listening to you, and he cares about you, and he's encouraging you to talk to him. And here's some encouragement for us. The prophet Hanani saying to Asa, who was doing wicked, he was reminding him of something true that he reminds to us. The eyes of the Lord, believer, run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to you. What a cool thing. The Almighty God who has his eyes on everything, he's looking at you, believer. He wants to give you strong support because your heart is blameless towards him because of Christ. He wants to help you do his work, and that's natural because his work is perfect. And he's sovereign, and he knows it's right, and he knows it's good, and he wants you to be part of it. He wants you to be the ambassador. So he's looking for opportunities to help you. So as you consider your prayer life, I want you to consider that confidence. He's looking for opportunities to help you. Peter says the same thing. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, those who put their faith in Christ. And his ears are open to their prayer. He's listening. Now keep in mind, we're going to find out, it may not be everything you want in the human flesh, but he's listening and he cares and he loves you. We've seen that in John, have we not? But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, the wicked. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter draws this in part from Psalm 22, Psalm 33 rather. Psalm 34 gives us this in understanding that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of the heart. I want you to understand something. That be, that's because he changes your heart. He's changing your heart and that changes things. This passage is famous because it tells us and it's kind of giving us this confidence that strength, true strength, is not in the stuff that we have, the strength that we have in, human, human, in the human form or in the, the weapons of war and whatever confidence you might have. I want to pick this up in verse 17 where he concludes those statements. And it's not in us. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. He brings it back to the gospel, what we see here, is that we fear the Lord, and the most important thing is not the temporary stuff that we see in this world, but it is the eternal, delivering their soul from death. That's what we see. So this is a promise to the believer, the blameless, the righteous, those who fear him. He's looking to help you do his work. What a confidence we can have, no matter what we face. As we go into this discussion of John, what an incredible confidence you as a believer will have as you face each of these difficult tasks that God has equipped you to do. And by the way, it, this comment, this statement that, well, God wouldn't give it to you if you weren't strong enough. You're not strong enough. <laughs> You're not strong enough, actually. God's giving it to you because he's strong enough. I want you to look at it that way. I am not strong enough. And we're going to see this through Paul. He had to come to that conclusion. But he is. Jesus is strong enough. And he's giving it to you so that you can rely on him as we go forward. And one last thing before we jump into John's world of prayer. The power of prayer is legitimate. It's real. Okay, And I don't want you to believe 
from what I say, and I want to start this way because before we get into John, simply because uh, I have a tendency to be kind of like a yeller. You know, you, you know I kind of jump on people's back. It's kind of like a football locker room all the time when I'm preaching, and I apologize for that, but I can't help it. I just can't help it. I want to encourage you with this before we jump into this. Prayer is real and it works. Okay, it does work. Look at what we see out of the half-brother of Christ who clearly understood things as they really were now. One who didn't believe in Christ during his lifetime, but when he saw the resurrected Christ, he believed in miracles now. He believed in his Savior brother now. Here's what he says. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It must work. It must be real. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person, and by the way, the King James is better, it availeth much, has great power when it's working. That is absolutely true. Now, I want you to read this in light of the rest of the Scripture we're going to see today. That this is, and I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll, it's a spoiler alert, this is based on the sovereignty and the sovereign will of God. So as you read this, this is absolutely true. Miracles can take place when we pray over those who are in, in desperate need of God's intervening power. Absolutely. And we've all seen it. But you've also seen times where God says no. It has to do with God's sovereign will. And I think that's what we're going to learn from John today. So as we go to the Apostle John and his reflection... Very quickly, and it's not a review of what we've already studied, but to a degree it is. That is not my slide. I don't need them because I got all my notes. Ah, oh, there, we're back. No, that's way back there. Eh, we'll, we'll do this. This gives you time to reflect, you know, as I click the button. I went too far? And that's a real spoiler alert. You're like, how are you going to cover all that? All right, let's get to this. <laughs> Buckle up. All right, here we go. What John witnessed. Let's just, this is not an all-inclusive list, as you know. What did John witness of his Savior? A lot of prayer. I, I want you to consider this as well. Jesus is God, and he found it important to talk to the Father, who he's one with. And I know that's a little complex, isn't it? That's difficult to understand. In part, much of what we see in Scripture is his, him teaching us, showing us, illustrating, but it was important to him and he needed it. In his human nature, however that worked, in that, that, that part of him, that he continued to need the fellowship with the Father, and so do you. But we see Jesus praying throughout the night at the beginning of his ministry. This is right around the time in Luke 6 where he is choosing his apostles, doing some big ministry work, where the Sermon on the Mount some say the Sermon on the Plateau is Luke 6, and then Matthew 6 is, I think they're probably the same. It could be two different sermons. But big sermon, where he's about to proclaim the truth. He's bathing it in prayer all night long. We saw that throughout John as well at the Mount of Transfiguration. When that happened, he was in the midst of prayer, and he, John was there to witness that. Peter, James, and John were the only ones who saw that. And he watched it happen. It was in the midst of prayer that this miracle took place, and he saw the glory of Christ. Saw that. At Lazarus, this incredible miracle. He prayed to the Father through this to show them. Sharing with, with uh, 
Uh, Pastor James, yesterday uh, I had the opportunity to be a, a, the chaplain for a football team for many years, and we had the opportunity, being a Christian school, to pray in the middle of a football field at the end of the game, win, lose, or draw. It was a whole lot better when we were winning, but, you know, that's a, that's a whole other side. But what happened was I had the opportunity and players had the opportunity to be able to preach the gospel as we prayed. Does Jesus know the gospel? Does the Father know the Yes. When Jesus prayed in, in, in front of all these people, he said, I know you know, and I know I know, but they don't know. And sometimes when we pray, and this is just a side note, you have an opportunity to pray publicly amongst non-believers, pray the gospel. Pray the gospel. It's an opportunity. They're, they're listening. They're there. Their heads are bowed. Maybe they're not you know, looking at their phone for that moment, and you can pray the gospel. Do that. It's an encouragement. He saw him do that, taught him to do that. The high priestly prayer, which I'm sure Pastor will get to in a few weeks, and then at Gethsemane, which we'll unpack here later. John witnessed Jesus praying. He observed, and this is not an exhaustive list. In Matthew 6, and I'd like you to turn there, he was taught by Christ how to pray. Go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Keep in mind, this is a human being, John the Apostle, not a perfect man, a man who had to learn like you do, a man who had to sit at the foot of Christ, had to listen and go through difficulty, and had to learn what to do. And Jesus tells him, we have a couple different accounts from, from the Gospels about what the Lord's Prayer looks like, but in this one, Jesus gives them a kind of a larger view of this. Verse 5, I hope you're there by now. When you pray, you must be, not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. Let's just pause right there. Prayer is not about show. Prayer is not about impressing people. Prayer is not about infusing to other people or showing to other people your dazzling intellect. That's not what it's about. It's you and him. It's you and the Lord. It's an intimacy. Here's what he says. And by the way, praying publicly, as I just mentioned, can be a great tool, but we don't show off with it. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I will say this about myself and other elders and the pastor, James, if all we do is come up here and pray in front of you and we never pray in private, we're in a great sin. And what we are living is a wicked life because we aren't doing what Christ has called us to do. Should we pray publicly? Absolutely. But if my prayer life isn't one-on-one -on -one with the chosen one in a closet room that nobody knows but me and him, and I'm not doing it right, and not, nor are you. Verse 7, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. They think they'll be heard for their many words. We've already heard and studied what God listens to. Don't be like them. Your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He said, pray like this, real simple. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Praise the Almighty God. Tell Him how great He is. Boy, did we see that in Psalm 100 today. Just worked out. Praise his name for who he is and what he has done. You pray for his kingdom to come, not yours. His will to be done, not yours. This is his kingdom, his will. And as we look at this, we notice that the very first three things Jesus teaches his people, you, me, his apostles to do, praise my name, glorify who I am, give me praise and honor and thanksgiving, and I want you to have a mindset that I want the kingdom to come. And I want his will to be done no matter what. 
No, no matter how the chips fall, that's what I want. Those are the first three things. None of those are about your selfish desires. Not one. They're not about you, your business, your school, your sport, your money, your house. They're all about the kingdom, his will, and his glory. That's how we approach the Lord. That's how John learned to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know that's perfect. Here it is not asking and desiring for the Lord to come and establish his kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. We ask for things. He wants us to do that. The things that we need. Forgive us our debts. We ask for forgiveness as we've forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We see that. We understand that. But I want you to understand the focus of this is the sovereignty of God, his will, his glory, and not ours. That's what we see out of John. So what does John hear from Jesus in John 14? A little bit of John 14. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the work that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, hmm, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I want you to use this passage with what we just read in Matthew and understand this must have to do with God's glory, which is mentioned here, and his name must have something to do with his will. If we're saying, and we usually do, we end our prayers in Jesus' name, and we do that out of habit, it's a good habit. You can pray to the Father because of the Son. You can go to him because of the Son. But when you pray in his name, you are really essentially saying, I want what Jesus wants. I'm putting his, his name, his stamp, and you bear his name, Christian, Christ one, little Christ. If you are truly in Christ, you bear his name. You're his representative, and he is transforming you into his, the image of his son. If you say in his name, you want what he wants. You love what he loves, and you hate what he hates. And when you put his name on it, you're saying, I want what you want. Change my heart so it looks like yours. That's what you're saying. That's what John heard in the upper room that night. That's what John heard. And John is thinking as a young man, I don't know what I'm about to face. Remember, John 14 starts with, there's, there's trouble. I know your hearts are troubled. But I want you to consider Christ does this incredible work on the cross, the eternal work that we desperately needed. He then defeats death. Forty days John is hearing him preach of the kingdom. And then we see this incredible miracle. John witnesses, he ascends into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes on him at Pentecost. All this happens. And things are, he's riding high, you got to think. And then I want you to take you here. Go to Acts chapter 12. John sees, hears, learns what it is to pray, who God is, what he should be like. And then we get here, Acts chapter 12. And this is rough, and I want you to consider this. We don't know exactly how much time has passed from the ascension that I just described to Acts chapter 12, but quite a bit of time. By this time, Paul's converted. He's on a missionary journey, or he's heading off to a missionary journey in chapter 13. And we see this, this taking place. We have the first martyr in, in, in Acts chapter 7 of Stephen. We have Peter proclaiming and understanding that the Gentiles are brought in. A lot of things have happened. And here's what we see. James or chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
This is almost like an afterthought. He killed James, the brother of John, in case you were wondering which one. Not the one we quoted earlier. That's half-brother Christ. This is James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So I'll bring this up uh, as, a, as a reminder. we will bring this up here. About that time, all we see here is he killed James, the brother of John. And it just seems like a blip, and we just move on because... What I'm going to, we won't look at it today, but if you know anything about this story, you know that, you know anything about this story, a great miracle takes place right after this. I could shout, but I don't think it would be the best thing. Maybe turn this one off. You're going to help me out here, Brian? Once again, just it's clipped. Consider it, you know, what's going on. Thanks. Fortunately. Got it? Yep. All right. You guys can edit that in the live, you know, maybe. <laughs> back to the back to the word. This keeps you humble. Back to the word. What we see right after this is what people just rush to. An incredible miracle of Peter being delivered from prison via an angel. An incredible thing happens, right? An incredible thing happens. But in our rush to the amazing, which we're humans, we like to do that, we miss this. Imagine how John felt there. His brother. You've lost, some of you have lost loved ones. Lost my brother-in-law not that long ago. Still hurts. Parents are gone. I know where they're at, by the way. John, John, knew, John knew where James was. He lost his brother. He lost his brother, this fellow sons of thunder. He got that name from Christ probably because of their boldness, and they wanted to bring fire down from heaven on those Samaritans, remember from Luke 9. They got that name from Jesus himself, but what had they gone through as brothers? What did they face? What had they done? We don't know. You know what you were like with your brothers and sisters, your loved ones, your husband, your wife. We don't know that John was married in any way. We know Peter was, but we don't know anything. They, they could have been real close, real tight. And here's the thing. James is arrested, and we got to make an assumption. As we go further in this passage, verse 5, when Peter is arrested, notice what it says. It says this. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. This is Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. we got to make an assumption, unless you think God just didn't care much for James, that the church was also praying for James. Were they not? It's not in the passage, but I think we can assume it. And what did John see? Peter is delivered miraculously, but my brother is taken out. Would that make him think, what's going on here? Maybe. Would that make him think, how could this be? We prayed earnestly. A miracle. We know you have the capacity. You just brought an angel. One. And he just did an incredible thing, and Peter's going to go do... What about my brother? I prayed earnestly for him, too. But we never see John reflecting on that with some sort of negativity. We never say, see him questioning God or shaking his fist at God. As a matter of fact, we see him writing the, one of the more eloquent, articulate, 
clear understandings of his love for Jesus in the Gospel of John. And essentially taking himself away from that, noticing in the Gospel of John that John always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. He looked at what happened to his brother as an act of love from the Father and from the Son. He never, we never see him say anything more than he loved me and I know it. And that includes this. That includes this. He saw his fellow son of thunder probably had the vigor. Imagine, he's like, God, he could have done so much for your kingdom. Imagine what could have happened in the next few decades with James. You know what kind of zeal he had. That's not how it went down. That's not how it went down. We see this clear understanding from last week. Thank you, Pastor. This reminded me that we need to have this understanding. The will of God is not up to us and our desire. And I won't go through this whole thing again, but you know the gist. You know the gist. The arrogance of man, the arrogance that John potentially could have had. I know, God, this could have been better. Imagine what James could have done. He was my brother. I know you should have kept him alive, but that's not how it went. This is another James, of course, but we see this clear understanding. We don't act that way. He says this right away. We don't act this way. We don't act this way where we're so arrogant and think we know. Instead, what do we do? You ought to say, if the Lord wills it, if the Lord wills it, we'll live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We trust the sovereign will of God. That's what we do. It's absolute truth. And here's what was true for John, and it's true for us. Paul's encouragement here in Romans chapter 8, of all things work together for good. Putting this in the, in the scenario that we just described. A miracle takes place with Peter. A miracle doesn't take place with John. John, now, if we think about him as the old man looking and considering all these things, not only has he lost James as we go forward, he's lost every friend he has. He's the only apostle left by the time he's writing the book of Revelation. He is the, probably the only one left when he's writing his epistles and potentially when he's writing his gospel. And he still considers himself to be only just the guy that Jesus loves. That's it. It's all he's considering. But he would say this. This is Paul's writings, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Notice the context of this passage. We often take this verse 28, but look at the context. It's prayer. The context is prayer in, in this passage in Romans. Romans 8, we don't know what to pray as we ought. I'll bet John didn't know. After his brother died and after he sees other apostles going out, the apostle Paul going out, he probably didn't know what to pray, but he continued to pray. I believe that he would have embraced this just as Paul writes it. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And we got to be so desperate that we talk to the Lord that way. That doesn't mean you don't speak, but you, you confide in him with the word. By the way, we sometimes pray the word to him. But there's some, sometimes we don't even know what to say. He who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. The death of James was for good. It was for good for James even. James is in a better place, but it was, for, it was for the kingdom. James also heard how to pray. Thy will be done and thy kingdom come. That, James heard that too. James lived it. James died because he was proclaiming the gospel. And he knew what was at stake. He heard what Jesus said in the upper room, and we're going to get to that. In this life, you're going to have trouble, tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. It's coming for you. 
We talked as men yesterday about being reminding our children and men that were not potentially at that, that Bible study. It's a and men and women, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, you prepare your kids to be persecuted. You prepare them, you tell them, living for Christ will get you persecuted, and it is good. It's all things work together for good. It's the will of God according to his will for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Who are called according to his purpose. Those who are righteous, those who are, who are covered by the blood of Christ. That's what we see. So the proper perspective on prayer, and we're going to kind of end this way. The proper perspective. What could that good be? What could the good be? It's interesting. I've looked at this before. In Philippians chapter 1, according to Paul, the good could be trouble, pain, suffering. He talks about this life that we live, this worthy life, living a holy life, set apart for the gospel, for the faith. But look at picking it up at verse 29. I got it on the screen for you, but it says, it's been granted to you. It's grace, that same root word is the, the root word we use for grace, granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's good. It doesn't feel good, but it's good for the kingdom and for the will and for the praise of the Almighty. The first three things we see in the Lord's Prayer. It's good. That could be the good. That could be the good. Paul continues on in Romans 5. We rejoice in suffering, not just because it's kingdom work, not just because it's the will of God, but it produces endurance and character and hope. It does something for us now. That's good. That's not easy, but when we pray, we pray these things. We pray Scripture. This is Scripture. And that hope does not put us to shame. When we are humbled and broken, that is the good. Those are the good things that work. When you read Romans 8 in the wrong way, you believe that Jesus is a genie. And it's your good that you want. The new boat, the new job, the new house, the whatever. That's not reading it correctly. That's not understanding it correctly. We rejoice in the good. All of it. Everything that's good. Peter and James have very similar thoughts on this. Notice what he says. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Cancer. Cancer. A lot of you are facing that. Financial hardships. Persecution because of your faith. Trouble in relationships. Trouble at work. All kinds. All kinds. These are all things that are testing your faith. Are they drawing you closer to the Lord? Or are you relying on your strength? Are you going back to that Psalm 33? You're relying on your horses, your power, your might. The one who fears the Lord relies on him. When we pray, we consider that. Peter says this, in this you rejoice. Now, for a little while, if necessary, you've grieved by various trials. For a little while. It's not, it might be necessary. That might be good. That testing of your genuine faith, it's more precious than gold. It perishes, though it is tested by fire. Notice it says, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Not to you, but to Jesus Christ. Amazing when we have the right perspective on this. And just as a reminder, we've talked about this before, a couple example, examples of this, proper perspective. Daniel and his three friends had a proper perspective. Now this one is just the three friends. This is my favorite two, three verses in the Bible, believe it or not. You might have always wondered, well, what? It, what yeah. This is the one. My brother actually, just coincidentally, it's probably because we were raised by the same mom and dad and the same book. I suppose, but it's his favorite too, and I didn't know it, which is kind of cool. And it's not this part. This is, this is the part that we know about these three men and, and what they had to face. You know that it was 
them against the world. These three refused to worship a false idol. They refused to do it. Hear that music play, and you got to go. And here's their reflection. This is what they say to Nebuchadnezzar. Facing death, this is what they say. This was painted on the back of my classroom, and this was highlighted. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. No doubt about it. We trust him. We know he can. Power of prayer is real. Miracles can be performed. Greater than what we saw from Peter being released from the prison. That can happen. And he can deliver us from the fiery burning furnace. This is the key to the whole verse. But if not. But if not. That may be true. But even if he doesn't, we rely on his kingdom, his glory, his will, that to be done, not ours. Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Put in there whatever it is you're going to follow other than Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you face. Your mindset, your perspective is, I'm going to pray for God's will to be done. He may deliver me miraculously. He may get me out of this jam. He, put, he may put me in a bigger one. doesn't matter. But I'm going to serve him. I'm going to worship him. An incredible thing. Sometimes he says yes. Sometimes he says no. I'm going to skip ahead. Now we had, I, I don't have time, but sometimes he says no. I said we we're going to dig into this a little bit. I told you what John observed. By the way, Peter, James, and John, again, they're the closest ones to Christ in the garden. In the garden of Gethsemane. It's just, they're there, but the three are there real close. And he heard this. He watched this. He observed this. This is Jesus. And I want you to notice something about this. Jesus is praying to the Father, and look at what happens. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. He's praying, even to death, remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face praying, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, look at this perspective. He's teaching, probably knows that Peter, James, and John can hear him. Not as I will, but as you will. But he believes it. He came to the disciples, found them sleeping again. Said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit intercedes is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. What was Christ's focus? The will of the Father. And no miracle took place here in giving him a way out of this. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He was flogged to within an inch of his life. Things we would have to turn our heads from. Because that was the will of the Father, and he embraced it. Sometimes God says no, and you're going to have to go through the fire. But it's okay. It's okay because God makes promises too. Jesus was sustained through that. Even though he was one with the Father, he had comfort and direction, and he understood what he was there for. We have promises that have to do with prayer too. There appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven to strengthen him in the midst of his pain and suffering. By the way, as a believer, you've got that too. You've got the Lord with you every step of the way. The Holy Spirit is with you to comfort you, to guide you. He may even use an angel to help you. The Bible's very clear that they are agents for the good and the work of the Lord in the work and the life of the believer. That might be happening to you. What an incredible thing. He was in agony, but the Father was with him. Angel was sent to help him. We know Philippians 4, don't be anxious for anything, but through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, make your request known. And what, get, what are you given? The peace of God. 
These are truths, even in the midst of struggle and pain and suffering, those various trials. That's a guaranteed certainty. What else? Wisdom. You pray, this is a guarantee. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. He's going to do this to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. The one who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. This is a guarantee. If you want to know the truth and you want to have the absolute certainty about what's right and wrong, he will give it to you, and he'll give it to you in this book right in front of you. You pray to him, you look to his word, and if you believe that this is true, you will find the answer. I'm not talking about the next lottery winning number. I'm talking about the real important things, the eternal things. The answers are right here. If you believe it, he promises to give you discernment and wisdom. It's an absolute guarantee answer to prayer. Peace, comfort, wisdom, direction, those things are true. And the most importantly, this one, grace. There's the most famous thing we see, maybe in all of the apostles' lives. Paul gives us more insight into his heart maybe than anybody else. We don't know, and by the way, this is by design. I am certain of it. We don't know what Paul's struggle was. We don't know what the thorn in his flesh was. That is intentional. It's intentional. It could have been health. It could have been a temptation. It could have been something we can't even think about. Some think it was the terrors he had in his mind from the persecution that he he gave to the church before he was a believer? We don't know. doesn't matter, and it's good that we don't know because you do have a thorn in your flesh too. You've got something you're talking to the Lord about and you're, you're pleading with the Lord about, and you don't know what's going to happen. It could be a temptation. It could be a struggle. It could be a health issue. It could be all of those things. But this answer is true for you just like it was true for Paul. And let me read it to you because this is where we're going to end. This is the most important takeaway for all of this. Three times I pleaded with the Lord. He's praying about this, whatever it was, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, his conclusion, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He wants the kingdom to come, the glory of God to happen, and the will of God to take place. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. You pick your poison. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He relied on the grace of God. This is a guarantee, believer. Grace will be bestowed on you. It's more than just the redemption that you received at salvation. That's huge. That's massive. That took you from darkness to light. You were an enemy. Now you're an ally. That, that's no doubt. You were lost, dead, and now you're alive. But grace is more than that. He sustains you in every step of the way. And it's sufficient. And it's a guarantee and when we pray, we pray the will of God, and you pray the will of God knowing that the grace is coming, the peace is coming, the comfort is coming. That's all coming, and it's his will. You can't lose. You can't lose. What a certainty that is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the certainty of Scripture, and we thank you for the certainty of prayer. I pray that we have the right perspective. John's perspective. He went through a lot. You put him through a lot. He had to see a lot of calamity, trouble, pain, suffering, as Paul did. But their certainty was in you and that your grace was sufficient, and it still is today. We praise your name for that. I pray for all of those in here who do not yet know your son, who have not yet put their faith in him. Move in their heart today. Convict them. 
I pray that they believe and so be saved. And for those of us who do know you, I pray that we walk in a manner worthy of that calling, that we understand humbly that your will is paramount, and we should pray your will. We do pray for that today. Give us opportunities to do incredible things for your kingdom that you will do through us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.